preacher stood up one morning in, on a Sunday and he said, the first thing I've got to do is to apologize because the person you were expecting can't make it. So I'm afraid this week you have to put up with a substitute. So right in the front row, there was a little boy with his dad. He said, Dad, what's a substitute? What does he mean he's a substitute? Father thought, well, how, how, how do you explain substitute? You know, the meter's going, the guys start to preach. And he just happened to glance up at the windows, and he noticed that one big pane of glass was missing. And in its place, somebody had just put over uh, some hardboard, <clears throat> obviously until they could do a proper repair job. So the father said, well, there you are, son. The real pane of glass is missing. The hardboard is a substitute. It's in place of the real pane of glass. Anyway, he's bright kid. He got it straight away. Guy carries on preaching. <clears throat> At the end, boy says to his dad, wow, dad. That preacher, I've never heard preaching like that in my life. I mean, he's like eight. You know? <laughs> so the father says, well, why, why don't you go and tell him if you thought he was good? I mean, he might encourage him. So he goes over to the preacher, <clears throat> looks up at him. He says, mister, I want to tell you something. You are not a substitute. You're a real pain. So this morning, whether I'm a real pain or a substitute, I leave others to, uh, to decide. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2. Luke 15, 1 and 2. See, the Jewish um, Pharisees and the scribes, they never could quite understand Jesus and what he was all about. And one day they said something about him which they meant as a complaint. But actually I find what they said is one of the most encouraging statements in the Bible. And if we read those two verses, and they were just homing on a small section of it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This morning, I just want to look at those first four words. This man receives sinners. So, point number one, this man. Referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus himself. This man is totally different from any other man who has ever lived. This man was not like anyone else. <clears throat> what does the New Testament say about this man? Well, the first thing it says is no man spoke like this man. By the way, I'll be using quite a few verses, so you might just want to make a note of the um, reference rather than trying to turn it up. John seven forty six. no one ever spoke like this man. Matthew 7, 28, 29, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
See, when Jesus spoke, you had to listen. When Jesus spoke, you had to respond. And you see different responses as you read through the four Gospels. Many people submitted their lives to him and joyfully followed him. Some left everything and followed him. Others, like, for instance, the rich young man, they went away sorrowful because the price of following Christ was too high for them. But you see, whenever Jesus spoke, you reacted. There had to be a reaction. This is not kind of, you know, nice sermon vicar kind of preaching. This is, what are you going to do about it kind of preaching. John 6, 63, Jesus himself said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And he said of himself that he's the only way to God. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's a bit exclusive. I mean, how does, how does Jesus fit in with, you know, the modern idea of inclusivity and diversity and all this business? Well, of course, simple answer, he doesn't. You see, if you ever find yourself in the presence of King Charles, for instance, what do you say? Nothing. He does the talking. And you fit in to what he's talking about. I read of somebody who some time ago was found himself sitting next to our late queen at some big banquet, and he started talking. And he was told in no uncertain terms, that's not how it's done. The monarch speaks first, and we fit in with the monarch. And how much more so, the king of kings. You see, if the world and Christ are on a collision course, guess who gives way? He doesn't. So no man spoke like this man. <clears throat> no man did the things that this man did. Acts 10, 38. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Acts 2, 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. John 3, 2, Nicodemus said to him, no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. No man spoke like this man. No man did the things this man did. No man lived like this man. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. He lived a perfect life. Nobody else has done that. So nobody lived like this man. And number four, no man died like this man. <clears throat> Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you want to know how big this temple was, uh, I mean, don't do it now, but afterwards, if you go out through the reception area, have a look at the corridor that leads down to the toilets at the end. That corridor is about the length of the curtain, so the curtain was that high. And it was something like four inches thick. And it was torn from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and many... Bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep 
were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to men. Imagine that. Imagine walking down the road, suddenly you see your granddad. He'd been dead 10 years. He's coming walking towards it. Well, that's what happened. People were uh, brought out of the tomb. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. No man spoke like him. No man did the things he did. No man lived like him, and no man died like him. Let's have a look at the uniqueness of Christ. See, no man was ever like this man. What makes him unique is because he is both God and man. See, the Bible makes it clear that he is fully God and he is fully man. He's not like 50% of each. We sing, don't we, um, uh, at Christmas time, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Not just God for us, God with us. And surely this has to be the miracle of all miracles, that God stepped out of his world of light and joy and peace and everything that was right and good, and he came into our world in the person of his son, and he was born as the baby Jesus. An absolute miracle of all miracles. If you read the Nicene Creed, well, I'm sure you do now and again. <laughs> we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. And then in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So here is the eternal Son of God in human form. And you know you'd pass him in the street. I mean, apart from the fact he's probably been followed, <coughs> followed by hundreds of people. But if you looked at Jesus, that there was nothing kind of attractive or unusual, nothing to draw your attention. He just looked like an ordinary man. And yet this is the eternal Son of God in, in human form. Greg was up here recently, and he's, he, he was saying, you, you just can't explain it. You can't explain it rationally in a way that we can understand. But see, throughout the history of the church, people have tried, and they've come along with all their various ideas, but you always end up with somebody who is not the Jesus of the Bible. You end up with a man who is not quite God, or you end up with God who is not fully human. And, I mean, if you Google it, you can see all the various isms, you know, all the, the heresies. I, I mean, I haven't put them here because I can't pronounce half of them, but they turn it up online and you can see the various different ideas people had to explain who Jesus is. And uh, it's actually it's far easier just to accept he is God and he is man. I can't understand it. I know that's not kind of intellectually satisfying. But that's just how it is. Some things in the Bible we don't understand. 
we, uh, <clears throat> we used to have a, a group meet in our home some years ago, this one. And a uh, young guy joined. He hadn't been a Christian very long. And we were talking about something one evening. He said to me, actually, there's one thing in the Bible I don't understand. So I stopped him in mid-sentence. I said, look, if there's only one thing you don't understand, you should be leading this group, not me. There's a whole load of things I don't understand. And people say, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll understand everything. It'll all be revealed. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe there'll be some things. Maybe the Lord never reveals some things. I don't know. I'm not clever enough to know. But if he decides that he's not going to reveal it, then we don't need to know it. So we bow our heads and say amen to that. So this man, this man is unique. Now, just one last question. You might not have thought of this. When did he cease to be a man? You see, he's the eternal son of God from eternity to eternity. As a man, he had a beginning. When did he stop being a man? The fact is he didn't. He is still a man, and he always will be. So if you think, well, how can, how can he understand me? He's in heaven. And he's a man in heaven. All, always will be. So this man is unique, and he is the only way to the Father. So point number two, sinners. Now, when you, when you hear the word sinners, I wonder who springs to mind. I mean, if you look at history and church history, uh, all sorts of people, I suppose you can say Adolf Hitler, who oversaw the murder of millions of people. Um, King Herod, at the time of Christ's birth, how he put the two-year-olds and under to death. See, these are obvious sinners, aren't they? People who rob people, people, you know, you get scammers. You get them all the time on your phone, they impress this, do this. Well, you see, they, they do people out of thousands. And it's, it's easy for us to look at them and say, well, of course, yeah, they're sinners because they're doing wicked things. What does the Bible say about sin and about sinners? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 Kings 8, 46. For there is no one who does not sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What I've just read there is an utter disaster. It's a catastrophe that we who were created in the likeness of God and created for fellowship and communion with him, we allowed sin into the world. And there came that barrier between God and man. <clears throat> sinners then refers to all of us. There's a preacher in London by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and one day he got to hear of a conversation uh, between a couple of his, uh, the members of his congregation, and apparently one lady said to another, she said, the thing with the doctor, he, he preaches to us as if we were sinners. Well, yeah, there's a reason for that because sin has affected us all. See, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they thought they were so good because they thought they were keeping the laws of God, plus all the traditions and laws that they had added. 
and uh, they thought they were so good. And sometimes people think that they're okay because they live good lives. I knew a lady years ago, she, she and her husband ran a, a hostel for young men in various uh, difficulties. And um, the day came, she heard this message of the gospel that were only accepted by the Father through the Son. But she became a Christian. She said to me afterwards, I thought I was all right because of all her good works, all the good things. And I mean, if, if, if we were accepted with God on the basis of good works, she would have been well near the front because she had done so many good things. But she came to realize that we're all sinners, however good we think we are. William Beveridge, who was a Puritan, he said, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer or receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of, and the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. He realized how deeply he and we are stained by sinfulness. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be a gross act of some terrible thing. In fact, one of the, the words that the Bible uses for sin, it actually means to fall short of the target. It means you're aiming at something, you don't quite make it. So you don't have to commit some awful, terrible crime or whatever. All you have to do is basically do nothing, and we're sinners. Because we, for instance, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do we do that every moment of every day? We've fallen short. So we're all sinners. <clears throat> and it doesn't stop when you become a Christian. See, when John wrote in 1 John 1.8, when he wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, he was writing to Christians. So even after we, we give our lives to Christ, we're still aware of a daily battle against the world the flesh, and the devil. So, <clears throat> we've seen this man, and we've seen what it is to be a sinner. So, point number three, receives. This man receives sinners. If you look at the Amplified New Testament, it says this man accepts, receives, and welcomes sinners. Accepts, obviously, is the opposite of rejects. People sometimes don't come to Christ for fear of rejection. Welcome, to welcome, of course, means to greet in a polite and friendly way. Human beings are by nature at enmity with God, but he will receive us when we come to him. John Bunyan, another Puritan. Good man, John Bunyan. He wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, for instance. I'd encourage every Christian to read that. And if you read it, read it again. I, you will find in Pilgrim's Progress uh, probably every situation you will face in life as a Christian. It's a great book. And he wrote and preached very humble beginnings. He, was a, um, he mended pots and pans before he became a preacher. He's actually sometimes known as the Tinker of Bedford. 
Anyway, that's John Bunyan. He, what was I calling? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he preached on John chapter 6, verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he says, they that are coming to Christ are oftentimes heartily afraid that he will not receive them. And he says that's why Jesus emphasized that he would not cast out any who come. And then he lists a whole load of objections that people raise kind of against themselves. You know, I can't come to Christ because. And here's a few of them. I'm a great sinner. I'm an old sinner. I'm a hard-hearted sinner. I'm a backsliding sinner. I sinned against light. I've sinned against mercy. I have no good thing to bring with me. And he said, so many people think that, you know, they, they begin to think, well, I'll, I'll come to Christ, and then they raise all these various objections. But his reply to all of them is to quote again the words, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So a few questions. Why does he receive sinners? Well, because his heart is full of love and concern for them in their desperate situation. Mike Reeves, who was here some time ago, he talks about Christ's compassion-filled heart for sinners. Jesus is no reluctant saviour, but one who delights in showing his mercy. He talks of Christians who feel bruised, weary, or empty. Christ's heart of compassion reaches out to all who know that they are sinners. Thomas Goodwin, another uh, Puritan, he said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. And again, how often have we sung, Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. So, that's why he receives. Question two, how does he receive sinners? Well, he receives sinners exactly as they are. There are some of us here, admittedly not too many, who can remember Billy Graham, the American evangelist, and often at the end of his preaching, the choir would sing these words, just as I am, without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. In Matthew 9, 12, Jesus said, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. So you don't go to the doctor when you're well, do you? You don't ring up and say, can I make an appointment because there's nothing wrong with me. You go when you're unwell, and that's when you come to Christ, when you aware of this soul sickness, if you like, of sin. That's the time to come. <clears throat> Again, Martin Lord-Jones, he said, our sins should drive us to God. Question three, when does he receive sinners? Simple answer, as soon as they're ready to come. As soon as you turn to Christ, and you can do it right now. If you're listening to these words, and you've never given your heart to the Lord, you've never submitted to, to his claim on your life. You could do it right now. You don't have to come out the front. You don't have to have anyone pray for you. Just in the quietness of your own heart, you can just open your heart to him right now. 
Question four, to what end does he receive sinners? Well, obviously in order to change us, to fit us for heaven. And if you are a child of God, your future in Christ is literally unimaginable. Where do I get that from? 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This Christian life is far bigger, is far greater, is grander, it is more glorious than most of us probably ever think of. Your future in Christ, unimaginable. So what are God's thoughts of us? Do you ever think, you know, what, wonder what God really thinks? What does he really think of me? Well, you know, when I um, was thinking about this, I thought of my old school report. I mean, uh, what a memory, eh? That's going back at it. And you'd, you know, I'd turn it up and see how many marks I could have got. And uh, you see the teacher's remarks at the bottom. Satisfactory. What does that mean? Satisfactory. I mean, it's not, it's not a ringing endorsement, is it? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you're all right. Satisfactory. People think that's how God thinks about them. She's a good Christian. I bet there's some here this morning. You think, yeah, I suppose. Well, I mean, you know, God puts up with me. Satisfactory. Nothing special. Mind you, I did not get what one boy had on his school report. It said, if ignorance really is bliss, this boy's future happiness is guaranteed. I didn't get that one. Satisfactory. Middle of the road. Best of the worst and worst of the best. <clears throat> but what are the Lord's thoughts about you? And when I say you, I want you to do something. I want you to forget everybody else who's in this room now, okay? Just imagine this is just you listening to these words. The Lord, your God, will rejoice over you with gladness, he will exult over you with loud singing. And exult means to feel or to show triumphant elation or jubilation. When I was preparing this, I learned a new word. And it's the word pleonasm. Now, I've never heard of it in my life. Pleon I thought I knew a bit about the English language. Pleonasm. It's where you use words that you don't strictly need but you do it for emphasis. For instance, the obvious one, I guess, would be, you know, you've seen some great thing that you can hardly believe it yourself, and you say, but I saw it with my own eyes. Well, how else are you going to see it? I mean, you don't need to put you. You're not going to see it with your own feet. I'm not going to see it with Pete's eyes, am I? I, I saw it with my own eyes. With my own eyes is a pleonasm. It means it's not needed but it's there for emphasis. And you have that in this verse. The Lord your God will rejoice over you. Now, don't stop there. It says, with gladness. Don't need with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. It doesn't need with loud singing. If, you, if the full stop came after you, that would be fine. 
But you see, that, this is how the Lord thinks of you right now. A pleonasm. If you want to know more, look at the, read the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a, a, a series of love poems, really. And it talks about the, the groom and the bride. Groom, of course, being the Lord Jesus, the bride being you and me. Now, you expect the bride, us, to be excited about the groom, Christ. Read in there what the groom says about the bride. Read there what Christ says about you. Now then, <clears throat> what right have I, as a sinner, to expect to be able to come to a holy God and for him to take notice of me? Well, it's because this man, this unique man, this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself accepts and receives and welcomes sinners. The Jews, they meant it as an insult, but it's one of the most encouraging things you will read in the Bible or anywhere for that matter. Remember these four words, this man receives sinners. One last question, and then we're going to, I'm going to finish with uh, a quote from our old friend, Mr. Spurgeon. If I didn't include a Spurgeon quote, I think Matt would never speak to me again. <laughs> so I've left it right to the end. The question is, will, will he ever tire of receiving me? Will there come a day when I come to the Lord and he says, well, all these years, you know, I've forgiven you lots of things, I've listened to you, not much of a Christian, are you really? And then it'll be like the parting of the ways. Will that ever happen? Well, let me read you this quote from our friend, Mr. Spurgeon. <clears throat> he says, how long has Christ loved you? And remember, you, forget everybody else, okay? That you cannot tell. When the ages were not born, he loved you. When this world was an infant wrapped in the swaddling clothes of mist, he loved you. When the old pyramids had not begun to be built, his heart was set upon you. And ever since you have been born, he has had a strong affection for you. He looked on you in your cradle and he loved you then. He was betrothed to you when you were an infant and he has loved you ever since. Then he refers to older people. He has loved you up till now and will he now forsake you? Oh, no. His friendship is so old that it will last. It has been matured by so many tempests. It has been rooted by so many winds of trouble that it cannot but endure, it will stand. Our Lord Jesus never can forsake those whom once he loves because he can discover nothing in us worse than he knew, for he knew all about us beforehand. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let's just close this part in prayer and then um, Tim and the 
musicians are going to come, we'll sing at the end. <clears throat> oh Lord, we do thank you because you receive us sinful as we are. And so often our hearts are cold towards you, and yet your love blazes towards us. Thank you how you watch over us, how you keep us. So we thank you with all our hearts, and we just pray for any who listen to these words and have never really come to know you, that you will bring them into that knowledge of you. And so we thank you and give you all the praise. Amen.